So before you knew it, this friendship had formed and this relationship had formed with these big, bad motorcyclists. I delivered the milk and she came to the door with her child and you see the baby's face and it's like, wow. My family's still like, how did you do 20 something years in prison? Had I not had my kids to look forward to, I doubt if I would have made it. I hung on to my kids for survival. Parenthood. It is the mother or father of all relationships. On this episode of the Relate Podcast, we're exploring parenthood from a couple different angles. There's the story of a biker club in New York City that helps support moms and their newborn babies. You're going to hear about a rather extreme example of parenting, this one from behind bars. And some hilarious perspectives on fatherhood and minivans from James Breakwell. He's the author of Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. You're listening to Relate. You're listening to Relate by Zendesk. Zendesk builds software for better customer relationships. For better customer relationships. I'm Tamara Stanners, and this is Relate by Zendesk. It's a show all about relationships, and this time around, it's about those relationships between parents and their kids. This first story involves motorcycles and babies. No, really, you have to picture a chopped Harley here and how the bikers who ride these motorcycles provide this amazing service to parents and their newborns. The Sirens Women's Motorcycle Club is the oldest largest women's motorcycle club in New York City. They live to ride. And they recently took on a project to deliver emergency supplies of breast milk to newborns, riding through the super crazy gnarly traffic of New York City. My name is Julie Boucher-Horowitz, and I'm the executive director of the New York Milk Bank. So what we do is we collect extra milk from women who are producing more than enough milk for their own babies and distribute it to babies in need throughout New York State. And we have formed an unusual partnership with an incredible group of women that... My name is Jennifer Bacchiel. I am the president of the Sirens Women's Motorcycle Club of New York City. You can call me Jen. Well, um, one day my husband and I were stuck in traffic and as we were sitting there I noticed a motorcyclist just bobbing and weaving through the lanes. And I know that's illegal, but it just occurred to me, what do we do when we've got to get milk in and out of Manhattan quickly? And I thought of motorcyclists and I thought of female motorcyclists and I thought, what if there were women motorcyclists that could help us out? So I did a Google search and up popped the Sirens Motorcycle Club of New York. 
and I called them. <laughs> Julie called me at the beginning of 2016 out of nowhere and had kind of told me a little bit about the milk bank and what they do and then presented this idea of delivering. And I, as strange as it was, I was like, wow, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. We'd love to be involved. It's a woman's issue. So I kind of jumped right on it and brought the idea to the club and everyone in the club was like, what? We can do what? It's like, yeah, I guess so. Let's do it. So before you knew it, this friendship had formed and this relationship had formed with these big, bad motorcyclists. I guess I don't feel like I look tough, but everybody says we look tough. And us with these little tiny one and two pound preemies. And all of a sudden now we have this fabulous relationship with this group of women and it's been working out really well. When we first started to use the milk rider, we t- I dubbed them the milk riders. I just, the idea came to me, let's call them milk, the milk riders. And I think that that has stuck. We use them in two ways. One is to pick up milk in a non-emergency situation. And the other one is to use them in an emergency. And when I first approached them, that's actually what I was thinking of. We're here in New York. If we've got to get milk to a baby in need very quickly, how can we do that? And it seemed like a motorcycle Uh, rider would be one of the best ways to do it. So we presented to them that we would like to use them if possible in an emergency situation. Oh, they come up. There have been situations where a hospital has run out of milk in the NICU and they, they need it for a sick child or a mother at a home has run out of milk and they need it for their sick baby. So I think that's when they call on us most to get things done fast. And believe it or not, that's happened more than once. And the most incredible story that happened was fairly recently in the winter, it happened too, when I get a text from a nurse at one of the hospitals saying, we're out of milk, we're not going to make it through the weekend, can you get milk to us? And I said, it's Friday at 9.30 at night. What happened? She said, well, the babies are eating more than usual, and they're twins, and one twin died, and we don't have enough for the other twin, and and the mom doesn't have any milk. So I texted, Jen was in Mexico, and I texted her, and I said, we need milk tonight. Can is Can we do it? She texted me at 9 p.m., I think, on a Friday, and I was working down in Mexico. I wasn't anywhere near home. So she's like, oh, I got to get this milk to this baby, and the milk bank is closed, but I really would like someone, if they could come and get it, to take it to them. And we have an additional service that our milk bank provides. When our milk bank is closed, my home office stays open 24-7. I was like, well, I'm, I'm in Mexico. I don't know what to do. I said, okay, let me see. Who can I call on? There's a few people I know that I can totally rely on. And I hit Judy up. I was literally asleep on my couch because I fall asleep in front of the TV all the time. And all of a sudden, my text message goes off that there's a problem with one of the hospitals that they're in pretty dire need of um, breast milk. And I'm like a little groggy, so I'm like, okay, um, let me get myself together and basically jumped in my shoes and... And said, I can be there in half an hour. 
it was Judy. She came to my house, knocked on my door. By the time she got here, I think it was 11.30 at night. And I packed up a dozen bottles, gave it to her, and off she went into the night. It was a great ride. It was really easy, no traffic, so maybe 20 minutes to get there. Pulled up, called up to the NICU. The nurses came right down. I maybe waited five minutes, and they were really happy to see me because this baby really needed that milk. We were so grateful that we had implemented this system that we could provide milk in an emergency, especially to this baby that really needed it so desperately. In my work history in emergency services, to me it's like another day at work. This is an emergency. You don't get very hyper. You don't get very excited. It's just work. So it was a very basic day. It was a very easy day because it was just a delivery of a box. But you know that in the greatest scope of this, that there is a baby at the end of the line and that there is a life that needs this milk. And anything that we can do to help that, and that's something that is always gratifying to do. Now, one of the things that developed even more, besides the relationships that we have developed with them, I mean, we just love them. I mean, they came to our milk bank. I hugged every one of them. I just am so grateful for what they've done for us. But besides that, they're meeting some of these babies that they wouldn't meet. These babies that are survivors that were born at two to three pounds, and then they're seeing them look chubby and healthy, and they're meeting the moms. I had a delivery to a home and I had no idea that I was going to be able to go interact with, with the baby at all, but I delivered the milk and she came to the door with, with her child. And I, it was, I don't know, all of a sudden it was real that we were doing something very specific for a very specific baby, you know what I mean? It was an instant sort of connection to the whole thing. It's easy to just do the job, take the milk, be the courier, until you see the baby's face and it's like, wow. You're listening to Relate by Zendesk. Zendesk helps your business turn interactions into lasting relationships. Parenting has never been an easy gig. Rewarding, for sure, but easy, no. The sleepless nights and spelling tests and soccer practice and attitudes, video games, siblings, picky eaters and curfews and just getting them to pick the laundry up off the floor. Please, can you do your mother a favor? Anyway, I think you get the picture. But now try to imagine being a parent while you're in prison. This is the story of Mona Graves. She spent 20 years behind bars, but still found a way to be a parent to her two boys. My family's still like, how did you do 20-something years in prison? Like, I think about it now. I'm like, wow, how did I do it? I really think that had I not had my kids to look forward to, I doubt if I would have made it. I hung on to my kids for survival. In the winter of 1985, Mona Graves was in the passenger seat of her boyfriend's car during a fatal hit-and-run. Three years later, she was sentenced to 20 years to life for second-degree murder and reckless endangerment. Mona was in her early 20s when she boarded the bus to take her to Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, 
a maximum security women's prison about an hour north of New York City. She had a toddler at home, and she was three months pregnant. From the minute you're there, it's really horrible. When you see it on TV, it's bad, but when you're actually in that position, that's when it really sinks in. You know, you're just on this big, long bus. Your arms are shackled, your feet are shackled to somebody else. You know, it's difficulty walking when you're walking downstairs in a bus, you know. They, like, push you, like, hurry up. I've seen plenty of people fall and get hurt and stuff. They strip you of everything. They douse you with, you know, lice medication. They strip search you and check, you know, everything. and make you squat, cough. It's really degrading. People are very mean. I mean... You know, they call you all kinds of names, you know, get the F up. They don't speak to you like you're a human being. You know, they'll, they'll put the cuffs really tight to hurt you. I don't remember if I cried or not. I doubt it. So what happened, like, I knew at 19 years old, I knew I had to be tough. I knew that if I didn't, that they wouldn't take advantage of me. There was this one girl that bullied everybody, my friends and everything. But she said something to me and something, and she mushed me in my face. And I just hit her back. And then I just held her in a headlock. And I was squeezing so tight, so tight. And, you know, the cops were coming. They were running. The alarm went off. They were coming to get me. And I was holding her neck. And she started screaming, I can't see, I can't see. And she fell. I think I cut off her air. And she just hit the floor. And that's when I got scared and ran. And it's not the type of person I am, not the type of person I want to be, but you have to, you know? But yeah, I was three months pregnant at the time. Was I concerned about my baby? Absolutely. But I, I really didn't have a choice at the time. Believe it or not, it earned me a lot of respect after that. It's just, it's just a, the mentality there is totally different. You know, it's a whole different, different world inside there. Six months after she got to prison, Mona gave birth. Her mother took her infant son soon after he was born. And over the next five years, Mona saw her two boys occasionally. But life in prison made Mona feel backed into a corner. It was all about survival of the fittest. Mona got into fights with other inmates and was caught smuggling supplies to friends in solitary confinement. For years, she was in and out of the box, as she calls it. Mona was on a path that was leading her further and further away from her two young sons, and she knew it. I have letters from my kids, and my son says, you know, are you still in lockup? And, you know, don't you want to come home? And my son was like five years old when he wrote this letter. And that's what really woke me up, is that when I'm in there, I get a visit once a week because I'm in the box. So that interfered with my kids. Not only that, is that you don't sit in a normal visiting room either. And these kids, my kids have been in prison, unfortunately, with me for all those years. So, like, they created relationships with the other mates' kids. You know, they're like family almost. It affected them so badly because they couldn't play with their friends in the children's center and in the visiting room no more. They had to sit in the boardroom with me. And if they wanted something to eat, they would get escorted to the machine and then back to me. So it really affected them. And then they didn't want to come visit me if it's going to be like that. You know, it's not fair to them no more. You know, how can I put them through this? It's bad enough. You know, they have to come here. And that's what really woke me up. 
At this point, Mona decided she had no choice but to turn things around. She stopped getting into fights in hopes that she'd get access to some of the prison's programs designed to help mothers stay close to their children. Bedford Hills isn't your typical women's prison. It's one of the handful in the U.S. that has a number of programs to help incarcerated mothers. It has a nursery for babies born to mothers behind bars. It offers parenting classes. And it has a children's center, which is a playroom stocked with toys, arts and crafts, and books to facilitate longer visits and bonding between mothers and their children. Mona was granted access to the children's center and eventually started working there. It was a turning point in her life. I started working in the children's center, which is in the visiting room. Those are the children that are coming to visit. And I did all the murals, you know. It's incredible. I mean, my kids actually grew up in there, you know. I, I mean, a whole world was created in this children's center when we interacted, everything we did. And then from there, I started teach parenting. I took on a class, Parenting from a Distance. Parenting from a Distance is a very intense parenting course. It consists of 16 weeks. It's all totally run by inmates. It was put together by inmates. It starts out with our own childhood and how important that is to how we parent. You know, a lot of us say, you know what, I'll never be like my mother. I'll never do that. And then we find ourselves doing the same thing. From our childhood, it'll go to our decision to become a parent. You know, was it planned or did it just happen? Were we emotionally stable, financially stable? You know, and how that affected our parenting. Really, really thorough, intense stuff. I feel like the women in my parenting class, they learned so much about themselves that they didn't even know. In addition to parenting classes, some pregnant inmates also have access to a nursery where they can stay with their babies to bond for up to 18 months after they're born. The nursery is great. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's um, everybody has their own individual room. In each room there's a crib, there's a dressing table. Everything you would have at home in a nursery is actually in the room. And it's not a cell. It's actually housed in the old hospital building, which is just, you know, like patient rooms, except for it's painted with all these beautiful murals, and they have a day room with a TV. They have a playroom for the kids, you know. They have all the safety things you can imagine, you know, the sockets. It's really nice. These programs try to offset some of the many challenges incarcerated mothers face. Challenges that Mona was very familiar with. I had to make decisions as a mother. You know, I had to make decisions. For example, my son Justin, the oldest son, he um, started failing in school. And what was even worse is my mom would stick up for him. Like, she would get a doctor's note, you know, like... Just bad stuff, where it was really unhealthy for both of them. And they were very close, my oldest son and my mom. And she would just defend him and lie for him. And it was a really bad situation. It ripped my heart apart that I told him, you're going to pack your bags because you're getting out of my mother's house. And he's like, well, what's more important, my education or my grandmother dying of loneliness? I'm like, your grandma's not going to die of loneliness. But you are not good for each other. I said, and I have a big family. I said, so fortunately, decide where you want to live because you're going. And this killed me. I mean, he was angry, of course. This, like, disrupted his whole entire world. And I knew he was going to be angry with me. And I knew it was going to cause a lot of problems. I knew he probably hated me at the time. But I knew as a mother I had to do that. Over the years, Mona continued to work with other inmates. 
She'd become a mentor for many of the mothers in her parenting classes and was involved in a program that provided the support for mothers to spend more time with their visiting teenagers. But after 24 years, her involvement in all of this would come to an end. Mona was 46 years old when she was released from prison. So what happened, you don't find out you're going home for the parole board until three days later you get a letter. And usually if the envelope is fat, that means there's appeal papers, that means you got hit. If the envelope is skinny, that means you're going home. So I didn't listen. to make a long story short, I found that I was really going home. So I was in shock. I really didn't believe it. By this time, Mona's two sons were grown men. They didn't need her in the same way that they used to. And like many mothers, Mona had to let them go. We were much closer when I was in prison than now. Much closer. You kidding me? Like my oldest son, he's married, he has two children. I mean, we're close. We talk all the time. I see him and everything. But he's not my baby no more like he was when I was in there. I don't care how old he was. He was always hanging on me. You know, now he doesn't hang on. Pay me no mind. And my son, youngest son, the same thing. So independent. You know, we don't have that mommy-baby relationship no more. I'm proud of them. I mean, despite the struggle and, you know, they didn't have, the, have a wonderful life with my mom, you know? They're great. I mean, they're really amazing. They amaze me. Today, Mona lives on Long Island. She sees her two sons and grandchildren on a regular basis. She hopes that eventually, parenting programs like the one at Bedford will be the norm, not the exception in women's prisons across the U.S. Do I believe in punishment? Absolutely. Do I think people, some people belong in prison? Absolutely. Do I think the children should be punished? Absolutely not. Kids need their mother. People really don't give thought to that, that the kid's suffering, you know? But I think that the children should be given the support they need. Distance cannot break the love of a mother and child, you know? And you can be a dedicated, nurturing mother, even from prison. So hopefully, if you are a parent, you'll never have to face the kind of situation that Mona Graves found herself in. But even if you've never had so much as a parking ticket, much less a prison sentence, there can still be barriers to bonding with your kids, especially now in this digital age. There's a great article over on the Relate online magazine with tips on keeping that bond strong. It's called Preserving the Parent Connection in the Age of Distraction. And you can find it at relate.zendesk.com. You're listening to Relate by Zendesk. Zendesk builds software for better customer relationships. James Breakwell. He's a professional comedy writer. And he's the father of four girls, ages six and under. Just put those two titles together, and you've got one of the most popular dads on social media. He's best known for his Twitter account, Exploding Unicorn, which boasts more than 850,000 followers. Here's James with an excerpt from his upcoming book, Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. You'll never think of minivans the same way again.
So it's the zombie apocalypse and you're tired of walking. Get a minivan. You heard me right. You can hoof it forever like a poor person, or you can ride to Valhalla on a unicorn. Yes, I call the minivan a unicorn. It can be whatever it wants to be. It's the chariot of the gods. Humans asked Prometheus for fire, and he said, screw that. Then he went back up to Mount Olympus and stole a minivan. People were so psyched they didn't even notice they still had no way to cook their food. They watched Finding Nemo on a built-in DVD player until they all starved to death. And it was good. But a minivan can't be a unicorn all the time. It's too busy being a four-wheeled sex machine. Everyone who drives one has been laid at least once. You can't own one of these bad boys unless you have kids. It's illegal. Sitting in the driver's seat is like a bat signal that screams to the world, my reproductive organs are in working order. I don't care if the bat signal doesn't make any noise. When you drive a minivan, you can hear light. Birds spent millions of years evolving colorful feathers to attract a mate. All you had to do was turn the key in the ignition. Vroom vroom. Sex machine isn't just a name. It will really get you laid. Like, so much so it'll be a problem. Families are like fish. They grow to the size of their container. With an eight passenger minivan, you upgrade from a goldfish bowl to an 80 gallon aquarium. Expect your partner to jump on you the second you pull into your driveway. It's pretty much gonna be all sex all the time after that. After the first few days, you won't even remember how to stand. Don't worry about minor details like pregnancy and childbirth. With a minivan, new kids just kind of materialize in their car seats like they beam down from the Enterprise. This is true even if you're in a relationship in which kids should be impossible. When you own a minivan, life finds a way. Your ride will be filled to capacity in no time. Then you can get back to surviving. Just don't get a van that holds more than eight passengers. You don't have time for that much sex. There's an apocalypse going on. The sex isn't even the best reason to own a minivan. Hell, it doesn't make the top 10. I'd put it around number 12 or 13, depending on how I feel at any given moment about stow and go seating. Driving a minivan is better than sex. When married couples have really good sex, they say that was almost as good as a minivan. The only thing better than driving a minivan is driving it some more, or maybe driving two minivans at once. I don't think that's even possible, but it should be. If you're a non-minivan driver, right now you're shaking your head in confusion. But I test drove a minivan once, you say to yourself. It wasn't that great. Wrong. You weren't that great. The wand chooses the wizard, Harry. If you drove a minivan and you didn't enjoy it, you were not worthy. You didn't reject the minivan, the minivan rejected you. Have fun being a muggle. To enjoy a minivan, you have to be dead inside. Not sort of sad or discouraged, but all the way dead. Like the doctor slaps the defibrillator on your soul and shouts, CLEAR! But instead of coming back to life, your soul catches fire like dried balsa wood. Then some jaded nurse flushes the ashes down a toilet. That is how dead you have to be on the inside to be worthy of a minivan. Dying on the inside isn't a bad thing. It's a rite of passage. You don't become a Navy SEAL by showing up to an ice cream social and writing your name on the sign-up sheet. You become one by going through months and months of hellish training that weeds out all but the toughest sons of guns on the planet. Parenting works the same way. Those who can't cut it buy crossover hatchbacks that match their antidepressant bottles. 
But for those who can stare into the existential abyss that is child-rearing without blinking, well, they're worthy of a higher ride. If you want to go anywhere in the zombie apocalypse, you need a minivan. Do you know how much stuff you can cram into one? A lot. Like a boatload, which is like a regular load, but proportioned for a boat. That's right, I went nautical. You can shove in all the blankets and pacifiers and stuffed animals your kid needs, plus knives and booze too. Think you can put all that stuff in a sedan? No way! If you jam all that stuff in a four-door car, there won't be enough room left for oxygen. Do you want to hold your breath for the entire zombie apocalypse? I didn't think so. You need a minivan. For more of James Breakwell's writing, his web comics, and details on his upcoming book, Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse, visit explodingunicorn.com. That's it for Relate this time around. In two weeks, we'll have an episode for you on diversity. We've got an amazing piece on a girl from Pakistan who got her big break in international sports by pretending to be a boy. And the story of a Syrian refugee whose entrepreneurial spirit helps other refugees start successful businesses in the Netherlands. In the meantime, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. That way, you'll get the next episode automatically. For more articles on connecting to your customers in deeper ways, visit relate.zendesk.com. And if you want to explore technology built to improve your customer interactions, head over to zendesk.com for a free trial. I'm Tamara Stanners. Talk to you soon. Music.